This is an ABC podcast. I'm very pleased to say Richard E. Grant is here. Every time I see Richard in a movie, I think, oh, how lovely, because I know he's going to show us something that we're all going to enjoy. Richard E. Grant has often brought a sense of danger and unpredictability to his characters, ever since his stunning performance in the classic British film With Nail and I. And it's all done in that beautiful speaking voice. And Richard's quick to attribute his vocal versatility to the tutoring he received from his late wife, the celebrated voice coach, Joan Washington. Richard met Joan way back in 1982 when he needed to learn a Northern Irish accent for a stage role. The two of them fell deeply in love. They got married, had a daughter, and enjoyed a rich and satisfying family life, which was so completely different to Richard's disastrous family life as a child, growing up in the African state of Swaziland, back when it was a British protectorate. A childhood in a household that was filled with too much gin and violence and adultery. So his 38 years with Joan Washington came as a huge relief and a delight. At the end of 2020, when Joan received a terrible diagnosis from her doctor, friends rallied around. And during the COVID lockdown, Richard and Joan were able to spend their last months together entirely in each other's company. Richard E. Grant's memoir of that time, based on his diaries, is called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Hello, Richard. Welcome back to Conversations after a 15-year absence, I think it is. Welcome back. Oh, thank you very much, Richard. The book is filled with your diary entries. How long have you been keeping a diary? Uh, since I was 10 years old. And it was instigated entirely from inadvertently waking up on the back seat of a car and witnessing my mother bonking my father's best friend on the front seat of the car after a cricket match late at night. So I tried God, didn't get a reply, and um, I obviously couldn't tell my father or my mother or friends. So I instinctively started writing it down, thinking that in order to make something unreal seem real, by recording it, nobody could then turn around and say, oh, well, this never happened. So it stood me in good set, and I've been doing it ever since for the last 55 years and counting. Did writing a diary give you a sense of stability in the midst of all that, that, the chaotic events of your childhood? Yeah, and curiously, in exactly the same way that uh, not knowing, when, when you have no control of anything as a child, when uh, Joan was diagnosed on her birthday on the 21st of December 2020 with stage four lung cancer, again, writing about it in forensic detail every single night before I went to sleep was a way of making sure that I recorded everything of the last, what turned out to be the last eight months of her life. And because I think it's very easy with uh, memory to, because it recalibrates and tricks you into things. Whereas if you record it at the end of every day, I think it's as accurate as you could possibly get of what that feels like to experience in the moment rather than with you know, rose-tinted spectacles in hindsight. So I think that it's... I found it very useful uh, from that point of view. As I mentioned, you met Joan when you went to her to learn how to deploy a Northern Irish accent way back in the early 1980s. When you picture Joan, at that first meeting you had with her, how do you picture her? Oh, she was... Um, she was five foot, th you know, she was five foot three, so half my height, and uh, <laughs> very slim. Uh, came from Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, was wearing kicker boots and a boiler suit, as was the fashion at that moment, and a big white belt and very choppy, uh, spiked hair like Laurie Anderson's in her video "Oh Superman," which was a big hit that year, surprisingly. Um, and here, and she had this deep brown, sexy, gravy voice and. She took no prisoners kind of attitude and was very, very direct and asked lots of questions. So I was instantly uh, mesmerised by her. And when she looked at you, what do you think she saw? <laughs> Annoyance. <laughs> because the, um, she was doing a six-week course of regional British accents at um, the, the Actors' Centre in Covent Garden in London in the theatre district and... She gave out a, a list of sentences that incorporated all of the key sounds and rhythms of a particular accent. And 
one of these sentences had the word fart in it. And, you know, I'm emotionally 12 years old. So, of course, hearing 20 pupils all having to say in whatever accent it was, oh, somebody farted, I fell about. And this really hacked her off. And she said, get a grip. So when I then subsequently begged her to give me some private lessons to sort out my colonial accent. She gave me short shrift and she said, I don't really have time and, you know, sound pretty normal to me. And I said, well, the few auditions that I've been out for, the directors have said, um, your speech is like somebody from the 1950s. And I said, I would like to speak like somebody from the 1980s. So she said, well, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you two or three lessons. That's all you'll need. And uh, privately, and it'll cost £20 an hour. And I said, oh, my God, but uh, my bed sitting in Notting Hill Gate, because I was a waiter at this point, is £30 a week. So £20 for one hour is an enormous sum of money. And she said, well, what can you afford? And I said, could you do it for 12 And she reluctantly said, yeah, all right, OK, I'll do it for 12 on the proviso that if you ever make it, you have to repay me. <laughs> Fast forward to the 1st of November 1987, our first wedding anniversary, and paper is the gift of that anniversary. I handed her an envelope stuffed with spanking new 50-pound notes, and I said, I think that I've repaid my debt. When, when I'm trying to put in a Northern Irish accent, pathetic as it is, I try and th- I think of Dave Allen impersonating Ian Paisley in one of his jokes. What secrets did she have, though? I'm, I'm sure she could do a lot better than that. Well, it's the whole... You know, it's where the tongue is in the mouth, and... Uh, I can just remember one word that, that she fixated on, which was debatable. So it's kind of got that, you know, it's, it's like sort of held debatable. Um, anyway, that was my clue into the accent. I never got a Belfast part, I should hasten to add. No reflection on her teaching skills. Joan had advised Barbara Streisand on her mm-hmm. accent, on her middle, Euro, middle European accent for the movie Yentl. And this was a very, very big deal for you. I think for you, Barbara Streisand was for you the same way as I feel about Kate Bush. How important was Barbara Streisand to you as, uh, growing up, Richard? Richard, I've been in love with two Jones. Uh, Barbara Jones Streisand, who I saw first in a movie called Funny Girl when I was with my parents in Rome in 1969 when I was 12 years old. And then Joan Washington, who I fell in love with and subsequently married, who I met in November 1982. So this Streisand thing was... I had secretly harboured this dream of becoming an actor, which was so ludicrous in Swaziland, where there was no professional theatre, they didn't have TV or anything at all, So, and there was no precedent of anybody in show business within my family. So I had followed the career of Donald Sutherland because I'd seen him in a movie when I was 10 called The Dirty Dozen, And here was an actor who was over six foot tall, very thin, with a very long tombstone face. And it also, from fan magazines that I'd read about, um, grew up in a small town in the middle of of nowhere in Canada. So he was my my, secret role model. But then I saw Barbara Streisand singing I'm the Greatest Star and was in a rag to riches backstage story. She had a long face and a long nose. And so, you know, Albert Donald right out instantly... In comes Barbara into my head. And then when I saw her at the age of 15 in What's Up Doc with Ryan O'Neill. Classic. Yeah. I was at full hormonal storm. So uh, seeing her without period costumes or clothes, it was a musical um, in a tight tank top with no bra at that point, you know, <laughs> being the early 70s. Uh, let's just say I was in a state of... Um, <clears throat> Erection for about a year. <laughs> so uh, it went on from there, and I know that the, the sort of adolescent idolatry of, of another human being is supposed to pass by the time you're 19 years old. But I'm obviously emotionally arrested, Richard, and I'm now 65 and three quarters, and it hasn't abated at all. If, if anything, it's intensified. So when Joan told you she'd given Barbara accent advice for Yentl, mm-hmm. I'm, imagining, I'm imagining you sort of going wild-eyed and shaking and saying, tell me, tell me, what did she say? What was she like? Was that what happened? I could not get over that um, I'd already, we'd already been together for six months when she revealed that she had coached um, all the middle European accents on for all the, the cast on Yentl. And she then also gave me cassette tapes that she had from the read-through where all the songs from Yentl were just with a piano accompaniment and her singing, uh, which is extraordinary. But, you know, it was an unbelievable privilege to, to have those, and I've still got them. 
And she said, because Joan is very, was very down-to-earth, unstarstruck and unsycophantic, she said that when she was called in to meet Barbara Streisand um, to audition to get this thing, she said that Barbara Streisand had said to her, can you do accents for me? And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not a cabaret artist any more than I'd ask you to sing me a medley of your greatest hits. <laughs> Streisand said to her, you're very direct. She said, yeah, I am. She said, I like that, so am I. And then she said, well, what do you think of my Princess Margaret accent? This is Streisand. And she did it for Joan. And Joan said, well, yeah, it's all right, but it's not very good. Uh, it's like, an you know, it's an impression. And she said, you are very direct. She said, well, I have to be. It's the nature of my job. So she said, have you coached on a movie before? And Joan said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, I haven't directed a movie before. So we're both virgins to, to this experience. So, And they got on very... <laughs> she liked her enormously. She was very soft-spoken and popular with the crew and very, very good with the actors. So everything, the antithesis of what had been written about her, that she was this diva and, you know... Frank Pearson, the director of Star is Born, had written an essay before the movie came out in which he slam-dunked her, which I know caused her enormous hurt and upset. So Joan said that she was the antithesis of all of that. So you met Joan Washington. Mm -hmm. How did you then, Richard, move the relationship with Joan from teacher-pupil to something more serious? Uh, well, after I'd finished my uh, six-week course with her and 20 other students... You know, I was carrying on waitering. I started to get a couple of theatre jobs. And in January 1983, she left a message on my answer machine in those days, pre-internet, you know, a little blinking light, and I didn't really know many people in London at that point. And I thought, am I being deported or is it inland revenue coming after me? <laughs> so I listened and it said, Hi, it's Joan Washington. You know, I coached you privately last year. I am teaching a Siswati dialect for a play at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and you're the only person in London that I know that is a fluent speaker. If you come around to my house, I will cook you dinner, and in exchange for you putting all of the dialect, all the dialogue from the script on tape, how does that sound? So I said, yep, I'll be there Monday night. I don't, I don't wait on a Monday night, so I went round. And we started talking, and in the way of the world, midnight came and went, heard the grandfather clock in her drawing room, and I realised that my timekeeping was not too accurate, and I said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I've missed the last tube back to Notting Hill Gate from Richmond, and I can't afford a taxi. Could I possibly sleep the night on your sofa or if you have a spare bed? So she said, yeah, I'll get you to the way. went upstairs, and she opened up to the guest bedroom, and the, you know, being Scottish, the radiator had not been turned on, so it was <laughs> arse-paralysingly arctic in there. <laughs> so I endured that for about ten minutes, teeth clattering away like a cartoon, and I said, I thought, I can't possibly die in Richmond in January without ever having had a job in England other than being a waiter. So I gingerly knocked on her door and uh, I said, yeah, is there any possibility, you know, I stayed tightly wrapped up, if I lay lengthwise on the bottom of your bed, or Boy Scout style, head to toe, and slight pause, and she said, get in here. So uh, I did. And then she said something that you as an ectomorph will appreciate. She said, oh, my God, you're as skinny as a stick insect which was not the seduction opening line that, you know, you wish for. I persevered and uh, essentially, you know, stayed the night. And so essentially that conversation that began in bed in January 1983 ended in bed, my holding her hand, still talking to her, on Thursday the 2nd of September 2021. So it was a 38-year-long conversation. Falling in love is so terribly, terribly exciting and relaxing at the same time. Was it also... Did it also come with a profound sense of relief for you? Like, it's happened at last? I didn't dare believe it because I thought I will never have a child and I will certainly never get married and risk what had happened in my parents' marriage. So, and she was married at this point, although a stranger husband was living in Liverpool with a makeup artist. Tony came back to London once a month or something. So I thought, well, how do I possibly take on somebody who is married, is 10 years older than me, all of those things. So 
the odds against it succeeding were pretty stacked. How did your her way of conducting herself in the relationship manage to shatter the bad patterns you'd seen in your parents' marriage? Like, what was she like when you sulked after a disagreement? Well, Oprah, there was, you know, I sulked at one point and because I'd learnt at the Empress of Sulking, my mother, the Victor Lodorum of Sulking goes to her because for the nine months prior to their divorce in 1967-68, my mother didn't speak to my father at all. I was the piggy in the middle, so it was like, pass the salt to your father and then oh, flung God. it across the table. So when oh, you're the go-between like that, you learn how powerful um, sulking is as a weapon. So when I instinctively tried this out on Joan, not even thinking about it, I sulked at one point, she called me out on it and she said, are you sulking? And I said, mm. she said, if you're sulking, you better get, you better get over that pronto presto because I won't stand for a nanosecond of it. And I was so taken aback that I burst out laughing. So any time I, I tried the, uh, the old sulking cul-de-sac route, subsequently it was pretty much stamped out. So I was very grateful for that. We're talking about her and we're telling lovely stories about how charmingly fierce she could be, but I'm sure she could also be incredibly tender with you as well. Uh, yes, but, you know, she was... I think that, you know, the English find this or have identified me as an oversharer, whereas the Celts and the Americans certainly, I've never been accused of that there, or particularly in Australia, but in England, they, I think they find it slightly confronting. So she was much more withheld in that way, whereas, you know, hearth and sleeve, mine, whereas hers was hidden. But I discovered after she had died, and she was very affectionate during her marriage, I'm not saying that, but I discovered a stash of every single letter that we had exchanged, aerogram, note, card. Whenever I went away on location or she went away, we always left cards in each other's suitcases or bed when we left. And she had kept every single one, so I knew that she was probably far more emotional, romantic, whatever you call it, than I had thought that she'd been. So I was amazed by that. Did she ever struggle to say, I love you, to you, or was she easy with that? Oh, no, no, she was easy with that. I would just say it ten times to her one. <laughs> so it's a bit of, damn boy. You know. A Labrador sort of overlooking and she'd go, you know. So it meant that when she did say it, it had much more weight and value. In 1986, you were given the part of Withnail in Withnail and I, mm -hmm. and it's such a signature role. And so much, uh, just looking back on that now, so much must have been riding on your shoulders at your first feature film, and you really have to carry that film. It won't work at all unless you're compelling and funny and dangerous as, as with now. Were you daunted by that, Richard? I think that having been out of work for nine months in 1985, that I had so much resentment and rage about that and how unjust that felt that all of that perfectly segued into or channeled into playing the part of this out-of-work actor. Um, so that was relatively, you know, it was a, a slam dunk in, in that way. But more than anything, the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis had turned down that part and left it open field for the rest of us to scrabble around and Bruce Robinson, the writer-director, had apparently been trying to cast it for two months and had seen everybody from Kenneth Branagh to Bill Nye up, down and sideways. And nobody had made, reading his script out loud, had made him laugh. And I said two words, fork it, that made him cackle, which at the time when I said it, you know, in my first audition, I had no idea. And then Mary Selwyn, the casting director, who'd got me in and told me that they were literally scraping the barrel and they got me in. <laughs> um, she said, oh, you must come back tomorrow because he thinks that if you made him laugh on two words, maybe you can, there's hope that you could uh, elicit more laughter from him from the remainder of the script. But... You know, that, that part is so brilliantly written that any actor worth his salt would have had 
success from it. And, you know, I'm acutely aware of that. I have no delusion that it's anything particular to what I did. Oh, no, um, I, I think it definitely is. I'm sorry. I really don't think it's what you brought to it. No, I think I think the first you. time I interviewed you after you made your film Wawa, about 15 years ago, yeah, and someone yeah. said, oh, well, would you like to interview Richard E. Grant? And I imagined for some foolish reason that you were, you'd essentially be a lot like with Nayland. It'd be like interviewing someone like Oliver Reed. And, <laughs> and I, I discovered in the process that, you know, with Nayland's always drunk, yet you're allergic to alcohol, both physically and, um, and historically and emotionally. You know, he's absolutely chaotic in his relationships and you absolutely love the stability of family life. In fact, he's the antimatter of you in a way. Is that right, do you think, Richard? Yeah. And I thought that it was must be psychosomatic when I couldn't hold alcohol down when I was a teenager. And I went to Dr. John Stevens in Swaziland and he did a blood test and said, oh, you've, you've got no enzyme whatsoever. You can never drink alcohol. It's completely toxic. So I had a role model in my father. So, you know, uh, he drank a bottle of scotch a day. And at nine o'clock at night, there was this pendulum swing moment when he turned Jekyll into Hyde and became somebody that you verbally and physically had to get away from. Does your fight-or-flight response remain on high for years after a childhood like that? Is it still with you now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you know, the extraordinary thing about alcoholics or addicts is that, in my experience, they're very, they're very often very charismatic and attractive people to be around but all the alarm bells are when they start repeating or when there's a personality change flagged, I get out of the way very, very quickly. I don't hang around. I've learned that. Your paycheck for With Nail and I? £20,000. £20,000, quid. that's pretty good yeah. back in those days. It's and a that, landslide of money. landslide of money. It enabled you to get married to Joan. Mm -hmm. What do you remember of your wedding day? We got married in a registry office because she had been married before and I have no religious conviction whatsoever. So we had a dozen people and then went out for lunch and then she had insisted that we cook, and she taught me to cook by this point, um, cook you know, for 100 people and had the wedding in our own house or was, was her house um, because prior to that I didn't have any money. And she always, she kept that rule all the way through our marriage. And I said, you know, we can afford to get a caterer to do this. She said, no, no, people appreciate it much more if you've cooked for everybody. So we did and played, I remember Percy Sledge's song, When a Man Loves a Woman, was the first song that we danced to. And then the following day, we went to the Seychelles for two weeks of a tropical honeymoon. How shocked were you to find yourself in a happy, stable family after all these years? Oh, very determinedly, I made it very, very clear to Joan that I'm a very vengeful person and that if she betrayed me, that would be it. I would never, see, you know, she'd literally be like how I, I knew from growing up in Swaziland that the Swazi attitude is that you are, you betray somebody, you become a ghost. You're, you're just invisible to them. Um, and I've seen people do that. So I said that if that was the case, and she said, well, her first husband had been unfaithful to her within six months of their marriage and then throughout the marriage and she said by the same token so we both held because of our experiences fidelity in probably an abnormally heightened sense of what that meant so both fierce about that like i mentioned the word relief earlier and mm -hmm. I, I don't know about you, but when I first got fell in love with my wife and Kim and got married to her, I felt this profound sense of peace and relief as a as a result. It's never left me that sense. It sounds like you had that. Too. You had, have you had this ongoing sense of peace? With I, I think Jones? more than anything, I put it like this: that to be seen, to be truly seen by another human being, is the greatest gift that you can hope hope for. And um, I had that with Joan. I thought that there is nobody that has seen me for who I am, warts and all, and has understood me in the way that she has. And she did this about two weeks before she died. She said, Swell, she always called me Swell. She said, um, oh, what do you think of so-and-so? And I realised after about five minutes, she was basically going through the 20 women who are single that we know together 
and oh. she essentially detonated every single one with some pinprick of um, <laughs> just a kind of, oh, what do you think of her? Well, of course, you know, her bump's too big or her accent <laughs> would drive you mad or the way she eats, on, you know, teeth across her fork would drive you completely insane. And I said, I know exactly what you're doing. And so we had a good laugh about that. So she was like a sort of territorial lioness to the last. <laughs> was she serious about that? Does she want you to stay loyal to her after death? We used to we used to joke about it that uh, you know what happens afterwards you know would you, and she said to me well if you if you died first she said I certainly wouldn't bother with anybody else, and I said does that mean that I have to, <laughs> I have to stick by your rule as well, <laughs> and she said no 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 of course you know you do whatever you want to do but it was very clear <laughs> exactly how she felt about that. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Richard... When you were offered the role as the manager in the Spice Girls movie, Spice World, how did your daughter react to that? Well, that's how I knew about it, because when I picked her up from school at four o'clock in the afternoon, she always went into my study and pressed the, the playback button on the answer machine in those days. And while I was making her something to eat in the kitchen, she came running through and she said, she was eight, she said, oh, Dad, Dad, you've been offered Clifford, the manager, in Spice World, the movie. You have to do this so that I can meet them. So it was a yes, very, very easy decision to make and it came true that she did regularly meet all of them when I was making the movie. They were at the height of their fame. So for two terms, when I picked her up from school, I had the highest status, I think, of any parent there <laughs> and they all came to the live concerts that, that they did as part of the movie. So it was an incredible thing. And But the more serious members of British equity took a very sort of snooty a scant look at the fact that I was in a popcorn movie, essentially. Why? Girls. No, because they thought, you know, you're traducing your talent. How can how can you sort of prostitute yourself oh, like that? rubbish. It's like being in A Hard Day's Night. You'd want to be exactly. in that movie, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, the, the argument was that the Spice Girls were not equivalent to the Beatles, who wrote their own songs. So there was all this sort of snobbery about it. And uh, anyway, I've stayed great friends with them. And I went to Jerry Halliwell's 50th birthday two weekends ago. What nickname did they come up with you? Old you? Spice. Old Spice? Yeah, I was Old Spice. Because I was 40 to their 20, although Jerry was 25, but pretending to be 20. Mel B, Scary Spice, pinched my bum on a daily basis and said, you're not bad for an old bloke. So I was called Old Spice. So in 1999, you, you're right, you suffered some awful kind of breakdown. How did it manifest itself physically with you? I felt like I couldn't get out of bed. I thought that I was paralysed from the waist down, and Joan said what's wrong with you? Uh, and I said, I just, I feel I've hit the wall and I can't, I, I don't know what's happened. I, I can't, I feel I can't function. So she pinched my thigh and she said, can you feel that? I said, yes. And she said, right, okay. What's Steve Martin's phone number? So I gave it to her and she called him. And luckily he answered, you know, time difference in LA and said, Swazi boy is in trouble could you give me the name and number of Christopher Bolas, this psychoanalyst that had really saved Steve's life? And he said, yep, give me 10 minutes. And true to his word, I got a message back saying that Christopher Bolas would see me in a couple of hours' time in London. So I went with very, very heavy heart and felt like I was wearing leaden boots on the train to Hampstead from where I live in London, in Richmond, and trudged up this hill thinking, God, I'm never, never going to get there. And I sat for 50 minutes in an all-white room, and he looked like a benign Karl Marx with a beard, and he was very avuncular. And I, my story just 
unspooled. And he made five significant connections about my childhood and my father's life and where I was at essentially that my father had been 42 when he'd been cuckolded by my mother. Independence came to Swaziland, which meant the end of his career as the director of education for the British government and had a 10-year-old son, i.e. me. I was 42, felt like my career was over or stalled and had a 10-year-old daughter. And so he said, you've subconsciously kind of hit the wall here. So he said, what you really have to do is reconcile with your mother, who you've been estranged from for 35 years. And we then spent 18 months on a weekly basis finding ways to break through the barrier of her, I suppose, resistance to all of this. And she had no awareness that this was going on. And it subsequently led to her writing me a very, very detailed letter about what it was like to be a young colonial wife in this strict pith helmet wearing ice cream suited pecking order of this homogeneously sealed expat life and how she fell out of love with my father and in love with somebody else. And then I reciprocated by writing her a very detailed letter about my father, you know, trying to shoot me when I emptied 12 bottles of his scotch whiskey down the drain. She was very shocked by that. Shoot you with a gun? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he missed because he was so drunk. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here now. And uh, when I told her about all of this, it was a sort of great meeting point of my understanding where she had, why she had done what she did, and she understood why I had been so frosty and estranged from her. And, of course, she, she said three magic words to me, which were, please forgive me which literally dissolved all these pillars of misunderstanding and resentment that had built up over three and a half decades and were replaced by compassion, love and understanding. So it was an extraordinary epiphany to experience that, for which I'm profoundly grateful. So I found it literally saved my life. So I'm very indebted to... Steve Martin and Christopher Bolas for facilitating that. You mentioned at the time you got the part of with Nail that yeah. you had all this rage from being overlooked as an actor. Was was rage also more deeply buried than that? And and did this reconciliation with your mum did that melt that rage or dis, or dispel it in some way? Yeah, it it does because if you know if it's it's been so embedded in you, it means that you you then have a place or an understanding of where it comes from and how to compartmentalise it and deal with it so that it doesn't, it doesn't stop you from functioning properly, which is what had happened to me. I just got to the point where I didn't know how to deal with it. So it really has dissipated, and I'm so grateful for that and feel light-footed. And I literally I skipped all the way down Hampstead Hill back to the train station uh, 50 minutes after my first session with Christopher Bolas. And, you know, that was extraordinary. And I felt dancing on air, in a sense, ever since then. You mentioned that although your wife absolutely insisted on your loyalty to her, she was prepared to accept another woman in the marriage, which was Barbara Streisand, your affection for her. <laughs> Tell me how you were contacted by her after you were nominated for an Oscar for that movie you did, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Well, at the end of January 19, uh, 2019, three weeks before the Oscars, we were both in L.A. and had all these publicity duties that sort of go around that you have to deal with. And I knew that I'd never, obviously had never been nominated for these big awards prior to that and never would be ever again. So I grabbed every opportunity. I wasn't complaining at all, but I had a day off. I said to Joan, let's go up to Malibu for lunch. We've got a open-top convertible, and beautiful weather, la And she said, well, we don't know anybody up there. And I said, well, well, let's just go. And we passed Malibu up onto the cliff called Point Doom and came to this end of a cul-de-sac. And I slowed down and she said, why are we stopping here? And then she saw these big double gates. And she said, is that Barbara Streisand's house? 
And I said, yes, it is. She said, oh, my God, Swartz. She said, you're going to be arrested or deported. It's three weeks before the Oscars. Don't cock it up right now. I said, you don't need to get out of the car. She said, of course I'm going to get out of the car. So she slunk down. I got out, went to the gates, pressed the buzzer. Oh, no. Now, what was I expecting, Richard? The Barbara Streisand was going to appear and say, hey, I got a fan letter 50 years ago from you. Come on in. No, a security guy came and said, yeah, well, what are you delivering? And I said, oh, no, nothing at all. I'm Richard Grant. I've been nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this year's Oscars, and uh, I've been a lifelong fan of Barbara Streisand. Could I possibly take a selfie of me standing outside her gates? And he looked at me befuddled and then said, well, it's a public highway. Uh, you, you don't need to ask, but very polite of you. So I did. And then with this picture posted, a copy of the fan letter that I had written to her, yeah, circa 1972, during, after I'd seen her on WhatsApp talk. And a day later, my daughter called me from London, and I could hear her girlfriends laughing in the background. She said, Dad, Barbara Streisand has replied to you on Twitter. And I said, don't mess with me. This is, I have a complete humorectomy when it comes to this. You know, you cannot mess with my devotion to Barbara Streisand at this moment. It's too cruel. And she said, get a grip. Have a look at your Twitter feed. And I did. And then saw that she had replied um, and ended it with congratulations and love, Barbara. And, oh, that made me just, I burst into tears right there and then. And then I subsequently met her at the governor's ball directly after the Oscars um, with Spike Lee, whom she had presented the award to for best screenplay, and spoke to her for about 20 minutes there. And she gave me tickets to go and see her at Hyde Park when she performed in London. <laughs> um, and then subsequently I went to... I was doing a, a TV series with Sally Field in Philadelphia, and I got an invitation to go to a private screening of a Julianne Moore at Donna Karen's house in the East Hamptons. So I got there by hook or by crook, by helicopter. Um, and she did say to me when I saw her, she said, are you stalking me? And I said, yes, I suppose I sort of am. Anyway, I then had, after the movie was shown, I had a two-hour, one-to-one, face-to-face conversation with her, which I will never, ever, I will not forget a single word of what was exchanged. At the end of it, I said to her, I have a confession. And she said, what's that? And I said, I've commissioned a sculptor in London to make a two-foot-tall um, sculpture of your face. <laughs> and she said, you're crazy. And I said, yes, I know. No, she said, no, you are crazy. Anyway, I have, and I've posted it, and um, it's, it went viral when it appeared. So Joan had to look at her for the last three years of her life in the garden. But, you know, she was a great admirer of her. And she said, you know, I understand she's absolutely beautiful and talented and extraordinary and unique. But she said, if Barbara crooked her finger and said, you know, come this way, Swaz, would you still go? And I said, absolutely. And so she said, well, <laughs> she's married to James Brolin very happily. And you're mine, Swaz, so no chance of that. <laughs> I'm just imagining how fun it would be to be an angel from the future to stand at the foot of your bed as a 12-year-old boy in Swaziland and, and say, Richard, the life to come, you'll leave Swaziland. You'll be nominated for an Oscar for your acting roles. Barbara Streisand will spend hours conversing with you and speak of how she admires you. How lovely, how lovely all that would have been. And you will have a happy marriage and a happy family life. That just seems yeah, marvellous. It's extraordinary. It? It's, like a, it's like a fairy tale dream come true, honestly. I still can't believe it. And, and, you know, to go back to your very first question, Richard, it's the reason why I've continued to keep a diary because it's the only way that I've been able to somehow record and make sense and, and make it real that this has actually happened to me. What were the signs that Joan was not well, that she had fallen ill? Oh, she was uh, a week before... Oh, well, on her birthday, on the 21st of December 2020, she said, Swells, I'm feeling slightly out of breath and out of puff going up and down the stairs. I said, how long have you felt like this? She said, oh, just a couple of days. I think that, you know, with COVID and lockdown, Christmas and New Year coming, I should just have an X-ray. So I said, right, so we, we call, call the hospital and uh, NHS and National Health Centre and service and went, got an X-ray, and they said, oh, you know, come in, come have a CT scan tomorrow because... There's a slight shadow on the base of your left lung, which is more than likely to be residual scar tissue from when you had pneumonia a few years ago. So we did and didn't, didn't take it very seriously. And then they said, oh, could you then come in following that for a PET scan? And then they sat us down on Christmas Eve and said, 
without doing a biopsy or getting the results of that which they subsequently had to do, we are 99% sure that you have stage 4 terminal lung cancer. So that was how we found out, with no warning whatsoever, and apparently that is the way that this, the stealth of this disease manifests itself. Why was she so reluctant to tell your friends about all this? She felt that she did not want to be pitied or become a martyr to her state of health. And I said to her, I countered that by saying that, you know, she knew that I'd been great friends with stand-up comedian Victoria Wood, who, when she was diagnosed in 2016, had included me in the small circle of people that she had shared the, her information with. But when her cancer returned and took her life, I was excluded from that very the, the handful of people that she knew and I said you remember that hearing about her death on the evening news was so devastating because a she died and b that somehow I had failed her as a friend that I wasn't included in that and I said people want to show what they feel towards you and it's too much of a burden you will know from you know the adultery of my childhood and my father's alcoholism having to keep those secrets are toxic and I think that by being open about everything you oddly become more protected or you can't be doorstepped about this information. Think of all the memorials that we've gone to or funerals where we said, God, if the person in the box could only hear everything that's said about them. And of course, I just, you know, Ollie and my daughter and I went ahead and told 30 people and we were avalanched by support and kindness and flowers and food. Who came around with gifts of food? Uh, we'd been friends with Nigella Lawson for over two decades, and Nigella had, she'd lost her mother to cancer, her sister, and her first husband, John Diamond. So she did an extraordinary thing. She cooked food every Sunday and sent it round in a taxi at three o'clock in the afternoon, which would lasted three days, enough food for three days, so I didn't have to shop or worry about what I was you know, preparing for those three days. And it was an incredibly generous and loving thing to do, which she did without a break for the last eight months of Joan's life. That's an extraordinary thing to do, rather than doing what I have done so often, where I've said, you know, you you must tell me what, if there's anything I can do for you. Just, just let me know and I'll, I'll drop everything and do it. Which I realise, now having been the carer of Joan, that that then puts the burden of responsibility onto you, the carer, or the person who is terminally ill. Whereas doing something turning up, sending a message, sending flowers, sending food, is what you really want. And you're so grateful for that. So it was a great lesson to learn. I'm going to read from your diary entry from the 28th July 2021. You wrote, Vanessa Redgrave, fragile at 84, and her daughter Jolly Richardson arrived mid-morning with country flowers and a cooler bag crammed with tubs of ice cream and sorbets from a farm <laughs> shop in Hampshire. Impromptu feast on our bed. Ice cream in bed. That sounds fabulous. Was it as fabulous as that? Yeah, because it was so unexpected. And they had been through such terrible loss. Vanessa had lost Corin, her brother, Lynn Redgrave, um, Natasha, who I was a great friends with. Natasha Richardson died in a skiing accident. So they know, they, they knew firsthand what, what the bereavement f feels like. So them arriving and just having an impromptu picnic with all these delicious things to eat on our bed was, it felt magical. So I was very, very grateful for that. And that was something that many people did in their own way. And you remember all of that. Anybody who has gone through terminal illness as being a carer or the person suffering from it, you remember all those kindnesses because they're they're somehow exaggerated in your in your head of, of how important they are as opposed to the people that you thought you could count on. And that's only 1%, but they're the ones that you remember who literally fell off the face of the earth and I will never forgive. When you were caring for her, mm -hmm. what were the small things you were able to do for her. I think these things are important, the small things you're able to do in attendance for the person you're caring for. What were you able to do for her? Uh, well, she said to me, Swells, whatever, whatever happens, I do not want to die in pain if you can, if you can try and uh, man manoeuvre that. 
and I would like to die in bed at home, not in a hospital or in a hospice, with you by my side. So I said, well, I, I will make that promise, but, you know, like a pie crust, I don't know whether I, I can hold to that because of whatever comes down the line. And it turned out that that, that is what, what we managed to do. She did die in our bed, and I was holding her hand um, right until her last breath and talking to her. So I felt an incredible privilege and sense of achievement that I had fulfilled what she had asked me to do for her. Since you held her hand as she took her last breaths, was yeah. there some palpable difference? A difference in what way? Between her being alive and her not being alive. The last half hour, of what turned out to be the last half hour of her life, her hand started getting, that I was holding, um, started getting colder. And I thought, am I imagining this? And then it coincided with her breathing becoming much lighter and much longer gaps between each breath. So I didn't dare let go and call our daughter in from the garden. She was sitting outside. So that when her last breath left her body at 7.30 on the 2nd of September, I then, while still holding her hand, shouted out for my daughter to come in from the garden, which she did. And then we both sat and held her hands for the next hour and just talked to her because everything that I'd read and been told is that hearing is the last thing to go. So it was an incredibly peaceful and calm thing to do. And then the um, undertaker came and we wrapped her body up and helped take it out into his car. It just felt very, very calm. And then, of course, you are, even though we had the eight months of preparation, knowing that she was terminally ill, the tsunami of grief that overwhelms you because... We were grateful on the one hand that she had been relieved of any earthly suffering or pain and struggle, but in a sense ours had only just begun. So that was, you know, we then, uh, I couldn't sleep that night at all. I think I finally fell asleep in total exhaustion at five o'clock in the morning, but getting used to that is something that you rationally understand that the person is gone. But even now I still... I still can't get my head around it that I can never touch or talk to her ever again. But six months after her death, I realized that what I call the steering wheel stuff, when you're driving home at the end of the day and I say, well, you know, what did, what did uh, Richard Feidler ask you? And you know, how did he bring up his children? How long has he been married? And uh, what did his voice sound like? And how was this conversation different to when you spoke to him 16 years ago? Far all the detail and minutiae of your day that you share or that we shared, I realized that after 38 years together, I know what her response would be. So that conversation I have in my head, I, I don't walk around like people with earpieces in the street going, oh, yes, I did this, you know, talking as though the nutcases talking themselves. That conversation goes on in my head to her, even though I know that I don't physically get a response, but I know what her response would be. And I found that very helpful and comforting and she said this amazing thing to um, my daughter and I four days before she died she said I know that you're going to be sad but I challenge you both to find a pocketful of happiness in each day and it's really become the mantra by which we have navigated on a daily basis the abyss of grief that you have to deal with and the hidden beauty of this very simple phrase is that it absolves you from guilt when you do feel joy or happiness in a moment, but not, not feeling that, oh, my God, how can I possibly be enjoying myself when my wife has died? So it was a profound thing, as simple as it sounds, to have said to both of us. A few months ago, I met a, an, an older woman who's, who was tiny in stature and mm -hmm. her husband had died a few years ago, earlier. Mm -hmm. And they, she was used to them sharing a king-size bed, even though she was tiny. And what yes. she put on his side of the bed were books. It was, she, she told me she just bought all these books and was reading them all the time. And so 
her husband, who could never really be replaced, of course. Yeah. There was something there. There were the books that she could turn to lying on his side of the bed. Can you go back to the same bed after that? I wonder. I sleep on Joan's side of the bed now. So that is, I suppose, is as close as I've tried to be to reach out to, to her because the shape of her side of the bed is different to mine because I'm six foot two and she was five foot three. So it is now, it's accommodated my shape into where hers was. So I find that, that's comforting and I've, I've stuck to that. And I've also, the other thing that I've been unable to do is she asked me to bury her ashes under a cherry tree in our garden in the countryside in the Cotswolds. And every time I've thought about doing it or even come close to picking up the box, um, I've just been unable to do it because I feel that that is the last thing that I have of her. So I've, I've not been able to fulfill that um, edict of hers yet, and I might never be able to. What I'm hearing most from you, apart from the love, Richard, is this powerful, powerful gratitude from you. Oh, yeah. And oh, you, are, you asked me earlier about what, what are the things that you do. She, I, I've never done any uh, manicuring. I've never had to do that before. But she, she really liked having body cream after she had a bath um, in the last eight months of her life rubbed into her and you know, clipping her nails and painting her nails and all of that. So her sense of self and vanity remained intact. And she said, I don't want to look like some dreadful old crone if somebody comes around to see me. So she said, you keep all of that intact. So <laughs> she called it the Swazi spa treatment um, on a daily basis. <laughs> oh, dear. This has been such a wonderful conversation and equally as powerful as our last one all those years ago, Richard. I've loved talking to you again. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Richard E. Grant's memoir is called A Pocketful of Happiness. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because she could never promise it to any child. But I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped. Like, stripped. I wanted to be, metaphorically, the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were going to oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?